Okay, so we are doing a series called Jesus is Greater, and uh, today we are in chapter 4, starting in verse 14, and we'll be looking at verses through chapter 5, verse 10, but I'm only going to read the first uh, three verses, uh, chapter 4, 14, 15, and 16, and that's kind of where we'll camp out. But I will reference uh, chapter 5 a little, but the majority of our time will be on these a few verses. So if you have a Bible, Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14, I'll read it for us. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word of the Lord. So I'm about to make a statement which needs to be qualified, and I realized this after I wrote it and tried saying it out loud, which is this. I like to have multiple drinks at breakfast. And now, by multiple drinks, I know. I don't mean like mimosas uh, or something of that nature. I promise you I am of sober mind and body this morning. What I mean is I like to have a variety of drinks, like coffee and juices and those uh, sorts of things. And so uh, naturally, I love going on a cruise. Marguerite and I have done a few of these because breakfast is like paradise. It's like breakfast paradise, you know? So I start with a hot cup of coffee and they give you a cup of water and then they come by and they say, would you like anything else? And of course I say, well, I would like a glass of milk and a glass of orange juice. And I've already prompted my wife to say, and a glass of apple juice because she would be embarrassed if I asked for all four or whatever. Um, So anyway, by the time the table is set, I have before me a glorious breakfast with coffee, water, apple juice, orange juice, and milk, and my wife is thoroughly embarrassed. But normal life is no cruise. However, I have found that you can sort of trick yourself into thinking it is if every now and then you have one of these breakfasts. And so this morning I had, I think, three out of five, maybe. I had coffee. I had four out of five. I had coffee, water, milk, and orange juice. And it was a great, great morning. And I'm being long-winded here, but my daughter is taking after me, okay? This is where I'm trying to get with my introduction because uh, she likes to have multiple uh, beverages as well. She has two sippy cups. One is for uh, water and one is for milk. And at breakfast, she normally likes to have both. Now, she is advancing the concept beyond what I ever imagined because the other week, she did something which had, it had never even occurred to me to try to do this. You know, each of the sippy cups have a little, like, straw. She's got one in each hand. She sticks both into her mouth and just drinks them at the same time. And I thought, wow, that's really gross. <laughs> uh, this mixture, of course, of milk and water brings me to the topic of Christology. And I, I, I know it's a rough transition, but... It was a hard week, all right? So that's the best I got for you. Christology, okay? It's the study of Christ. And if you're going to have an orthodox Christology, it's really important to understand some basic math that Jesus is one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, and that there is no mixture, okay? Like milk, water. There's no mixture between these two natures. This may not seem like it's very controversial to you, but in the early church, this was a big deal. And in fact, most of the early ecumenical councils of the church and church history were trying to nail down precisely what the Bible teaches about Jesus. In 451, a council called Chalcedon made a definition. And part of it said this, that there's the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, 
this is important, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person. Now, I promise you the whole sermon will not be this dry, but it is important that we think correctly about Jesus. And we think correctly not only about Jesus being God, but about Jesus being man, about the humanity of Jesus. And in our text today, Hebrews 4, this is one of the classic texts on seeing the humanity of Jesus. It says in verse 15 that Jesus was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what does that mean? What does that mean that Jesus was tempted in every respect? That's what we'll look at today. Three fast points. The first is that Jesus is truly human. The second is that Jesus is able to sympathize. And the third is that Jesus is eager to help us. So let's get going. Jesus is truly human. If you look at uh, chapter 4, verses uh, 14 to 16, what you'll see in our text are kind of two parallel uh, statements. There's a statement about the divinity of Jesus, followed by an exhortation, which is, let us hold fast our confession, the end of 14. And then there's a statement about the humanity of Jesus, followed by an exhortation in 16, let us then with confidence uh, draw near. So while I want to talk about the humanity of Jesus, I first want to talk about, need to talk about the divinity of Jesus, because that's where our text begins. It says this in, in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, this is the first time that the title Son of God has been directly applied to Jesus in the book of Hebrews. And it comes right after his human name, Jesus. So the author is really trying to show us something important here. And he begins by saying, Jesus is divine. And we know three things about him and his divinity. There's a detail here. Jesus is called a great high priest. So what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, first, working backwards, a priest is someone who speaks to God on behalf of man. That's what a priest did. So if you, if you had sinned and if you needed God to forgive you, you would go to a priest and the priest on your behalf would go to God and would offer a sacrifice. A priest speaks to God on behalf of man. Contrast that with a prophet, for instance. A prophet is someone who speaks to man on behalf of God. A prophet is one who would have a message from God and they would take that to, to the people and say, this is what you need to do. But a priest goes the other direction. A priest goes from man to God. Jesus is a priest, but it says he's not only a priest, it says that Jesus is a high priest. What does it mean to be a high priest? It has nothing to do with cannabis. Don't think that. If you are now thinking that, I'm sorry, but I wrote that, so I had to make the joke. But he's not, there, Jesus being a high priest has nothing to do with that sort of thing. The high priest was a priest in the temple that had a very specific job. And if you were to go look at the temple in Jerusalem, before that, it was a tabernacle. It had two big sections. And the first uh, big section, you came to from a door at the east of the temple. The temple faced the east. It's a small detail, but it is kind of important because when Adam banished, uh, when God banished Adam and Eve from the garden, he drove them east, east of Eden, driven from the presence of God. And now the temple faces the east. And so as the priests enter into the temple, they're moving from east to west, almost like they're retracing their steps towards the presence of of God. And when they came through those doors on the eastern side, they came into a big room. And this room, uh, the big room, had an altar in it, and it had uh, a table with bread on it. And this is where priests would go. It was called the holy place. 
and only priests were allowed into the holy place. Ordinary people like us, we would not be allowed into the holy place, only the priests. But as you kept going uh, from east to west, you moved through the holy place and you came at the end to a giant door in Solomon's day. In the day of Jesus, it would have been a giant curtain, really tall, really thick. And behind that curtain was another room, not the holy place, but the most holy place. And this is important. Priests were not allowed to go there. A priest could never go into the holy place, most holy place. Only the high priest could go there. The high priest could go there, but he could only go there on one day out of the year. And this was called the day of atonement. And on this one day out of the year, what he would do is the high priest would take the blood of an animal sacrifice and he would walk through the holy place into the most holy place. And on the, on the Ark of the Covenant, which had a mercy seat that was sort of symbolic of a throne, he would sprinkle the, the blood there. And that was for the atonement, the forgiveness of sins for the people. And so Jesus is called not only a priest, but he is a high priest. Now, that's interesting because... Jesus, during his earthly life, would have never went inside the temple, the temple proper. He would have never entered into the holy place at all, much less the most holy place. So how can we say that Jesus is a high priest? And it says that he's not only a high priest, it says Jesus is a great high priest. And now you should know that the writer of Hebrews is not trying to say that Jesus is like a really, really good priest. What he's trying to say is that Jesus is the, is the greatest high priest. He's the great high priest. He's the high priest of high priests. There's no one greater than him. The same way in chapter two, he was talking about the message of salvation. He's saying there's this great salvation. It's greater than the Old Testament message. So if Jesus was not a Levite, if he never went into the holy place, much less the most holy place, in what sense is he a high priest, much less the greatest of all the high priests? And the answer, of course, is what it says next. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And what that means is that Jesus did not enter just the, the holy place. He didn't even enter the most holy place, but he entered into the truest and the greatest, most holiest of all places. He entered into the very heart of heaven. Jesus, when he died, he took not the blood of an animal, he took his own blood, he went as a sacrifice and as a priest into the very throne room of heaven, not to just the mercy seat, which was meant to symbolize the presence of God. He went to the very presence of God, to the very throne of God. This is what makes Jesus the greatest high priest. He goes on our behalf, and the exhortation is that we should hold fast our confession, for we don't have a human priest who can let us down. On our behalf, because of the cross, because of his blood, Jesus has entered into the very heart of heaven, offering us the forgiveness of sins. Now, I've just spent, I don't know, five minutes talking about Jesus being God, but the real point I want to make is that Jesus is truly human. However, you'll notice that this is where the writer of Hebrews starts, but he doesn't spend as much of his time here as he does on the humanity of Jesus. He actually is trying to emphasize not the fact that Jesus is divine, but that Jesus is truly man. He spends about twice as much time in our text talking about the humanity of Jesus. It's almost as if the audience of Hebrews finds it easier to believe in Jesus' divinity than his humanity. And that would be kind of funny. Like, imagine you were driving home and you got out of your car before you got into your garage 
it doesn't make sense, but make it work. And you meet a neighbor, because that's the only way to meet a neighbor in Phoenix, right? Is if you're going into your garages at the same time. And you strike up a conversation, and you start sharing the gospel with them. They find out you're a Christian. And after you explain the gospel to them, you say, does that make sense? And imagine they say, you know what? Yeah, I, I see that Jesus is God. Makes perfect sense. Totally on board. I'm just not so sure that he was a man. <laughs> you, that'd be kind of weird, right? You'd be like, no, he really was a man. They're like, I, I don't buy it. Yeah, I think he's God, but I don't think he's a man. That's pretty weird, but that's what's happening here in Hebrews. In fact, so much so that it seems that the author of Hebrews is anticipating their objection because he says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. It's almost as if he's trying harder to get them to see Jesus as human than that he is divine. Why does it matter so much that Jesus is human? Here's why. Because if Jesus is God then that means he has the power to save you. But only if Jesus is man, does he have the position to save you, right? Jesus has the power to save you because he's God, but he has the position to save you because he became a man. It says in chapter five, verse one, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To be a priest is to be a man. So Jesus had to become a man to be a priest for us. But to go into the very heart of heaven, no high priest could do that unless they were God. The job that Jesus had to do was one that had to be done by a God-man. And now, if Jesus is not only truly God, able to pass through the heavens, but truly human, what would that mean? It tells us in verse 15. It says, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Tempted in every respect as we are. Now, this is a crazy thing to say. You might be more like the audience of Hebrews than you realize. This is saying that Jesus is as truly human as you and as me. And that is a, a pretty remarkable thing because we don't often think about Jesus that way. We might be guilty of this, this mixing of Jesus in our heads. There's a pastor and a theologian from Wales named Derek Thomas, and he in his class explains it like this. He says, imagine that you had a time machine and you could go anywhere you wanted in time. And now if you think about it long enough, there's only one place to go, really, the first century to see Jesus. Where where else would you go? Okay, so we're all going to the first century to see Jesus. And let's say that we go on the day he's feeding the 5,000. A miracle, right? And we witness Jesus feed the 5,000. Proof of his divinity. I mean, it's outstanding. And let's just say while people are picking up bread or whatever, you have a moment to go up to Jesus and you get to ask Jesus a question. And it can be any question that you would like. You have a burning question, a question that only God can give the answer to. Will the Diamondbacks ever return to the World Series? Or whatever it is. Maybe it's more serious in your heart. But you go to Jesus with this question that only God would be able to answer, and you ask him your question. Derek Thomas says, do you know what Jesus would say to you? Nothing. He would just stare at you because he doesn't speak English. He doesn't know what you said. And even if you spoke Aramaic, he wouldn't know who the Diamondbacks are or what in the world a World Series is. And even if he did, he wouldn't care because baseball's not a real sport like pickleball. Am I right? That would have been the question. Jesus, will you play pickleball? 
So, you know, he says in his class, there's always someone, you know, and maybe, maybe you're feeling this right now, like, wait a second, but Jesus is omniscient. Jesus knows everything. There's nothing that Jesus could have not known. And this is where it gets kind of technical. And I feel like I'm walking on eggshells because I want to be truthful, but Christology is not exactly easy. Jesus is one person with two natures. And of course, Jesus is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipowerful. Uh, is that right? Omni- omnipotent. Uh, he's, he's, he's all of these things according to his divine nature. But according to his human nature, he is truly human. And if you say, but wait a second, no, Jesus had to know everything while he was truly human, that's Apollinarianism. That's the heresy that Chalcedon corrected. You see, this stuff does matter. Apollinarianism said that the divine mind resided in Jesus's human body. But that can't be true. Because if Jesus is truly human, then Jesus not only had to have a true human body, he couldn't have like an upgraded, like more than human body. He couldn't have a more than human brain. He couldn't have... He couldn't have a more than human psyche. He had real human emotions, real human mind, real human psyche. Another way to say it, and sometimes theologians will say this, is that Jesus never cheated by borrowing attributes from his divine nature into his human nature. That is to say, Jesus lived an ordinary human life just like you and just like me. And part of that even includes having a life of faith. We read in Hebrews 2.13, where it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And then quoting the psalmist, the prayers of Jesus, he says, I will put my trust in him. Jesus woke up every morning and lived a life of faith, of perfect faith in God as a man. And so when it says Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, what this means is that Jesus was in the exact same flesh, the exact same situation that you and I are in. Jesus had to live a perfect life as a true human. It doesn't mean that when it says Jesus was tempted in every respect, it doesn't mean that Jesus was tempted in every manner as we are or something like that. As if Jesus were tempted not to eat too many Sanders, you know, chocolate caramels from Costco. Those didn't exist. If Jesus were tempted by all possible temptations, he would be more than human in that moment. And he was not. So Jesus being truly human, tempted in every respect, means that Jesus did not have a cheat code. Jesus was not able to just get a pass. It wasn't easier for him or something like that because he was also, uh, had a divine nature as well. Think about the temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness. He had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and he would have been very hungry and very weak in this moment because he was a true human. If you want to know how Jesus felt after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, it's exactly how you would feel after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights while living on South Mountain. That's how Jesus feels in this moment. So when Satan comes to him and when Satan is tempting him, you shouldn't imagine Jesus as stoic, as muscular, as energized. You should imagine Jesus as as shriveled, as hungry, as weak. It was the the, the weakest moment of his human existence He's being tempted at the the tiniest fiber of his humanity by Satan. And when Satan comes to him, he's mocking him. He says, if you are the son of God, you shriveled little worm-looking human, if you are really the son of God, you pathetic thing, that's what Satan is saying to him, then you turn these stones into bread. And Jesus did not sin in that moment. But Jesus said, you know it, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God because Jesus was a true man. He says, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, and that's what I am. I'm a man. The, the, the temptation was to tap out. The temptation was to cheat, to use his divinity in a way that would no longer make him our, our priest who suffers as we have. I know this may sound complex and it's, <clears throat> you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen or something. But when you really start to see it, it's actually really, really important to see that Jesus gets what it's like to be in your flesh. Luke 2.52 says that Jesus not only increased in stature, but in wisdom. And what this means is that Jesus, like you and me, had to learn a language and he had to read and he had to learn to memorize the Bible. He had to learn how to figure out and build furniture. He probably stubbed his toe. He probably misplaced tools and had to go look for them. He was a man just like us, tempted in every way as we are. He had emotions like us. Jesus had a real human psyche. This means Jesus would have felt sorrow, the same way you feel sorrow and pain, the same way you feel pain and fear and stress. In fact, if you look down at our text in chapter five, verse seven, it says this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He's not putting on a show. Jesus was a true human like you and like me. And that means that he was not spared from the pain of living in a fallen world. He didn't get a pass. He didn't have a cheat code. And what that means is Jesus is not only tr truly human, but Jesus is able to sympathize. It's our second point. Because there was no mixture of his divine nature and his human nature, he was just like us. With one important difference, it says, he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Now, as soon as I say that, Jesus was sinless. He had no sin. That means not only that he never committed a sin in his entire life, but it also means that he did not have a sinful nature. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost. He was born of a virgin. That means he did not inherit a fallen nature like you and me. That means his heart was never inclined towards evil at all. Now, the moment I say that to you, that Jesus was sinless, I'm really afraid that you will make a Christological error, and they're very easy to make. It's a common heresy, and this is one that I call Supermanarianism, okay? Supermanarianism, okay? So what is Supermanarianism, and what does it mean to be a Supermanarian? I will tell you. Well, Superman, as a matter of objective fact, is just the worst superhero, right? He's just too super, right? Like, who can relate to him? You know, he flies, he shoots lasers, he's got invincibility or whatever, he cuts, you know, he can just do anything he wants to do. And I'm, I think they probably invented kryptonite just to make the stories more interesting, because if he always wins and nothing hurts him, then it's hard to relate to that. A better hero would be Batman, although then you realize that he's just a millionaire who needs therapy. So the best superhero of all is Spider-Man, of course, because he's a geek and... I need that in my life, so thank you, Spider-Man. So, but, but anyway, Jesus, being sinless, I'm afraid that you will become a Supermanarian, and what that means is you think that Jesus is just too super. You think that he's just too good. If Jesus was sinless, and if also Jesus didn't have a sinful nature, then how could he relate to you? That's what you're wondering as a Supermanarian, and that's probably what the audience in Hebrews was thinking. They were thinking he's got to be unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So a couple of thoughts on that. The first is, 
It is true, okay, this shouldn't be shocking to you, that Jesus is more super than you and than me. I was not conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't have a divine nature outside of my human nature. Neither do you. There's not a hypostatic union going on between your divine and human nature. And that's just something, let's be honest, we can't relate to, right? But this does not mean that Jesus never suffered while being tempted. It, it says that in Hebrews 2.18. It says that for, since he himself has suffered while being tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. John Owen says it great this way. He says, Christ faced all the suffering part of temptation. We also face the sinning part. What he means there is that we are tempted by three things, by the world, the devil, and the flesh. We have sinful flesh inside of us. But Jesus was only tempted by the world and the devil. He did not have sinful flesh. He did not have a sinful nature. So Jesus, in this, in this respect, is more like Adam than we are. Adam, the first man, Adam and Eve, were, were in a state of innocence as regards their morality. They had not sinned. They did not have a sinful nature until they fell. And yet they did. But think about how much greater Jesus' temptation was than Adam's. Adam was in a paradise. Adam was in a, a body that had not been corrupted by sin, in a world that had not been corrupted by sin. Adam had one test, and he failed it. But Jesus, it says in Romans, he, it says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And, and what that means is, it's being technical, not that he had sin, like a sinful uh, heart, but that he came into a fallen body, just like yours, one that's already under the curse of sin. And that Jesus was bombarded by temptations from every side his entire life long. And now you may think, and that's why I can't relate to him, because I'm a sinner and he's not. But listen, sin is not an essential part of your humanity. Sin is just the perversion of your humanity. The same way that you think of like an apple, right? Like if you have a rotten apple and you have a fresh apple, they're both apples, but one has been corrupted. It's like that with Jesus. It's like his, his heart was not corrupted by sin, but neither was Adam's, and Adam was the first man. Jesus was truly human. Jesus being sinless, here's the point, does not mean that he understands you less. It does not mean that he is less able to sympathize with you. In fact, it means that he is more able to sympathize with you. He's even better able to understand you because of his sinless life. And now here's what I mean. Imagine we're going to play a real sport like tennis, okay? And imagine you can choose who you want to be your coach. Me, I wouldn't recommend it, or Novak Djokovic, by every statistic, the greatest to ever pick up a racket. So if you were going to learn tennis from Novak Djokovic, you would never say, at, with him as your tennis coach, he just doesn't understand my tennis game because he's so good. If he was worse, he would understand my tennis game. No, what you would say is, because he's the greatest to ever lift a racket, he understands my game even better than I do. He understands my footwork. He understands my forehand and my backhand and where I should be on the court. He knows it all better than me. And that's what it's like with Jesus. Living a sinless life does not mean that he understands sin less than you. It means that he conquered it. It means that he defeated it. He twisted it to the ground and strangled it. That's the sort of person you want to help you fight your sin and sympathize with you. C.S. Lewis put it this way in a classic passage from Mere Christianity. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. 
This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. But Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. Jesus did it. He did something amazing. He never sinned. He felt the full strength of temptation in a way that you and I never could. His entire life, at every turn, at every moment, up until the cross, and he never sinned. And that makes him extremely sympathetic to us. One writer said, Jesus has had an experience that he can never forget, living in our flesh, this fallen flesh. And the final point is this, Jesus is eager to help. Jesus is eager. Because Jesus was truly human, and still is in a human body, because he is glorified now, and he is passed through the heavens to the very throne room of God, Jesus is eager to help us. And look, I don't know what your problem is this morning. When I say your problem, maybe you think of something. And I don't mean your circumstantial problem. I mean the problem in your soul. Because one thing as you read the Bible, you see is that the Bible really tries to narrow in on your heart. Because the circumstances matter, they do, but the heart is primary. Jesus had terrible circumstances during his earthly ministry. He never sinned once as people were trying to kill him, tug him every direction, blaspheme him, beat him up. He never sinned. And so I I can't help you with your external circumstances, but what I want to ask the question is, what is happening in your soul? What's happening in your life? And what would it look like if you found the person that could actually help you? What would they have to be to find the most genuinely gracious and generous person in the universe is what I'm going to call them. What would this person need to have? They would need to have first some sympathy. You're gonna have someone help you in your soul. They would, you would hope at least that they know what it's like. They, you would hope that they have some sort of general idea of the, of the type of pain that you have, the type of confusion that you have, the type of hopelessness that you have. You want them to have some sympathy because plenty of people have means to help, but they might not have sympathy for you. But sympathy wouldn't be enough. You would need someone not only to have your same experience, but for someone to be good, good enough to help you. Because plenty of people have suffered probably like you have in in this life. But how many people are good because of it? How many people have just become bitter or hard because of the experience? Not warm, not gentle. What you need is someone who is caring, someone who's good enough to help you. But even those things are not quite enough. You might be able to find many people in this room that are sympathetic and are good. And I really believe that. But you need someone who is able. You need someone who is powerful to help you. You need someone who can actually do the helping. Because many people, I'm sure, would love to help you. I would love to help you. But the funny thing as a pastor is you begin to realize I am powerless to help you with the circumstance in your heart. All I can do is point you to the one who can. And where can you find such a person? It's in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Jesus is a great high priest who has passed through heaven and now sits on his throne. And the throne, what that symbolizes is his power. Jesus is the one who is not only sympathetic, who's not only good, but is powerful. He is actually able to help you. In this moment, even, he is able to do it. And notice, it's not called the throne of power. It's not called the throne of dominion. It's not even called the throne of glory. It's called a throne of grace. Because Jesus is gracious. He's generous. He's giving. There's no part of him that's selfish. There's no part of him that's domineering. There's no part of him that's brutal, that's mean, that's snippy. None of it. He's just good. He is good to the core. And what this means is, maybe you've never come to Jesus before in your life. What this means is, Jesus wants you to come to him. Even more than you realize. You, Jesus is closer to you than you are far from him. Do you understand this? Jesus wants to help you more than you want to be healed. That's the goodness of Jesus. And this is what the gospel calls you to do. It says, exchange it. Exchange your sin. Exchange your bitterness. Exchange your doubts. Come to Jesus. He will heal your mind. He will heal your heart. He will heal your soul. And his promise is he will heal your body one day. Or maybe you're in a different situation. Maybe you've come to church for a while and this is all par for the course. You've got the gospel. You've heard it over and over. And I'm happy if that is you actually. But maybe you're in a place where you can't think of the last time you really prayed. You can't remember the last time you actually approached the the throne of grace. And that's what this passage calls us to. It says, let us draw near. Let us draw near to that throne. And if that's you, maybe you're wondering, can I still do that? Will Jesus still take me? Does Jesus still want me? And will he answer my prayer if I come after this much time? Or if I come and I've got this sort of attitude? Does Jesus still want me to come? Will he take me back? And this text says the answer is, of course. He knows what it's like. He is a great high priest. And as the song says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Will you carry it to him and draw near? And let's pray together as we do that. God, we need your grace in our lives. We need your grace not only to to call us uh, to your throne, uh, but we need your grace, God, to even walk with us as we take that journey. And for, for some of us, it's painful to walk that direction. But God, I pray that you help us to see the, the, the healing that can come through the hurt. And I just pray for anyone in the room who maybe they identified as a Christian years ago, and now they're not sure. Or maybe they had a vibrant faith at one time, and now they feel dry. Maybe they've never ever come to the throne of grace because of sin, a sin that they think is too great. Jesus, I pray that you would help them see you are their priest. You're in the business of forgiving sin, of healing brokenness, of welcoming the forlorn, of loving the lost. Oh God, do that for us this morning. And I just pray, God, that you would give us as a church the ability to come to this throne often in time of need to find timely mercy, timely grace to help us. And we thank you for being a generous God who is eager to give it. We pray in your holy name. Amen.